attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Tommy Mason, the most famous Tommy to come out of Birmingham after Tommy Shelby. Tommy is the founder and lead designer of Studio Mason, a digital and branding agency based in Brum. An experienced creative specialising in UX, UI and branding and doing great work for the likes of BMW and Pizza Express, Tommy is a man who embodies the word scamp. He was nominated for the Drums Young Designer of the Year 2018, and more recently nabbed himself one of their chip shop awards. Tommy says, being a designer is like being a doctor. Most of the time it's enjoyable helping people, but every now and then you have to face an asshole. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Tommy. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> what a quote. Yeah, it's uh, one of my favourites. Uh, I'm surprised I came up with it, to be honest. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, seven quickfire questions, Tommy. Birmingham or London? Birmingham every single day. Peaky Blinders or Breaking Bad? Peaky Blinders. Stick with the home. Gareth Barry or Gabby Agbonlahor? Oh, Gabby. Every, Gabby, Gabby, Gabby. <laughs> He's a hero, Lee. Oh, yeah, absolute hero. Black Sabbath or UB40? Oh, UB40. I'm not, really, not much of a team to him, Mark. UB40 every single day. Red, red wine. Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit? Oh, uh, Lord of the Rings, but saying that, I've not watched either of them, so... Both written in Birmingham, apparently. I only found that out earlier. Photoshop or Illustrator? Illustrator. And lastly, form or function? Function. Nice. Good answers. Didn't stumble at all. Normally we trip people up. You did well. Yeah, I was, I was expecting like Antel Deck or something along those lines. Go on then, Antel Deck. Ooh, Ant, Ant seems like he has a much of a better time on the weekend, so I'm going to go with Ant. <laughs> Good shout. Uh, so tell me, tell me, what was your what was your first like, ever job, and then what was your first design job? My first ever job was um, was actually working for my dad. My dad owns a, a car recovery firm, and I naturally uh, kind of went from school in, in, into that. So it's kind of like picking up cars that are broken down, basically. And I, yeah, I didn't do well with the cold outside, and I just knew it wasn't for me. Like going up to the yard every day. Uh, eight o'clock and uh, unlocking these massive gates which kind of I'm not, I'm not the biggest of guys and uh, these gates just took me with them every single morning and uh yeah w- definitely was not for me getting uh into the oil and the petrol and stuff uh, so that that wasn't I had to break his heart basically because he's built me up over all these years to like love trucks and stuff and on the first week I was like you know what dad this sent for me this uh <laughs> I kind of like, let him down so he ended up having another son so I'm just kind of like the middle one there, so um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of let it broke his heart there. But um, that was my first ever job. I mean, it lasted a week. So after that, I was like, and then when I told him I'm going to go back and go to like college and start painting and drawing, he was just like, "What the fuck are you, man?" 
He was just like, you are no son of mine. <laughs> but now he understands, kind of. He thinks I do. He thinks I work at Vista Print. I'm pretty sure. But um, yeah. he's, uh, he, he, he understands now. But uh, nice. yeah, my first design role was um, straight from college. Actually, I went into a uh, apprenticeship at a local agency, which is no longer running. But it was a, it was a Bromsgrove agency, which specialised in traditional graphic design, and then slowly moved to digital as well. That's um that's interesting because normally the route is is do I go to uni or do I not and I I think there's a lot to be said for design apprenticeships but they're probably less available I don't know how how did you stumble upon your one? Uh, when I was at college, I I was kind of determined that I was going to do an apprenticeship and I remember talking to my fashion tutor and saying I'm going to get an apprenticeship in graphic design and she she her words were they're like gold dust you you'll never get one uh so I I kind of like took that and said bollocks to you I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find one so. <laughs> I like proving people wrong, so I um just literally googled it, and at a the time there was a new startup brand from Birmingham called Creative Alliance, who are still running and they're real they're really uh big now compared to what they were when I first found them. But they specialise in apprentice not purely apprenticeships within the creative industry, and it was complete for well, a complete fluke that I stumbled upon the one in my hometown of of Bromsgrove. So I went for the interview and I showed them. Because at the time, I had a very bare, basic portfolio from college. And the, the only thing I could show them was this table that I've made and a tiny, tiny bit of graphic design, which I put along this table. And uh, I've, I've seen it recently, actually. And I, honestly, I I don't know how I got the job. <laughs> I was either struggling for candidates or or just felt sorry for me. But yeah, that's, uh, that's how I kind of like stumbled upon it. Because I've always learned better by doing as opposed to kind of tests. Uh, at school, I was really poor at the tests but uh, doing the actual work I kind of like thrived in that area so I know apprenticeships were more for me as opposed to filling box ticking criteria. And then what was it like your your kind of day one on the apprenticeship was it was it run within the agency? Yeah so uh, it's purely uh, by the agency I'd have a tutor come in every every couple of months just to make sure I'm filling all the criteria that I need but it was literally as if someone should pick you out of college and put you in a, a everyday agency and at the time I didn't even know what role I was meant to be doing I got there and was designing to these briefs things which didn't make any sense whatsoever and it was so fast-paced and obviously at college you're used to spending six months on creating an A4 piece of paper or like pissing around in photoshop putting clones and stamps and stuff and uh, all of a sudden I've just been thrown into like the creative suite because I wasn't like fully immersed in the creative suite either at this time we was using like sketchup or freehand mx it was called at the time and like, this thing called quark which my god if you've ever, if you've ever used quark i don't wish it on my worst enemy and we're kind of i was just kind of thrown into the creative suite to kind of learn it and for the first year i was purely art working uh, so that's like getting stuff ready for print basically so i wasn't touched any digital uh, never touched a website on the, like, the first year and it was just kind of print production uh, but at a time what I didn't know was I was doing that print production. I was learning the creative suite, learning InDesign, learning Photoshop, learning Illustrator, and learning more importantly the processes, headlines and stuff. So yeah, it was um it was really in depth. But at the time, I thought I was balling. Like I don't know an apprenticeship wage, but I thought I was absolutely like milking it. I was going to the local pub on the weekend, going, guys, I've got this round. Don't worry, I'm a designer. <laughs> <laughs> it's on me. <laughs> it's on me. I've got these. <laughs> Looking back on it now, well. Uh, yeah, that was not the case. 
And, and did you did you find you loved it from day one? Like, because because obviously there's there's a lot under the bonnet in terms of process and 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 things to to learn. And I imagine going in almost cold, if you like, from college, where as you say, you had six months to to come up with not a lot. It must have been um there must have been a challenge at the same time. But did you did you really just kind of go with it? I did love it. It was it wasn't the uh, it was pretty stressful, and because I wanted myself I wanted to be on par with the designers already there but of course these guys have been like designers for like five to eight years already above me and I'm two weeks in the job and I want to be as good as them which obviously my, my a lot of the time my designs look great but if you actually went into the design foil it was absolute chaos like the layers would be all hidden and uh, there'd be some clipping path which is like in size the flux capacitor or something and it was <laughs> it was absolute chaos if, if one of the designers went in, if I was ever ill and that was my main fear. If I was ever sick, it was a, my fear was another designer picking up my design file because I knew that they would they would never find in a million years how to how what what I've done because I've completely winged it. <laughs> a lot of time it was kind of like sitting down and with the designers at a time and my mentor, uh, who was the lead designer there, Richard, and him pretty much explaining this is the way we do it, uh, and this is the way it's done. But from there, you kind of pick up patterns. So I, I kind of noticed that he would design a certain way for one type of client and pick up just things that you don't really get taught at college, just the way designers work and the processes. It's, you made me feel really edgy there when you were talking about the state of your design files. So I'm, I think we need to, <laughs> we need to move, move on from that. And then, and then, so how did you how did you go from that to, to specialising in, in UX and UI design? So it was, it was quite a big gap in between that. So uh, when I started off as an apprenticeship at, at that agency, I was there for a good four years. Towards the end of that, I was starting to do digital, but at this time I was using like Photoshop and kind of old school web design tools. Uh, it was only when I made a move to my second agency, just further afield in, in Warwickshire, uh, where I was eventually just before leaving, I was lead, design, lead digital designer. That I was kind of, I kind of took a drop to go from uh, midway back to junior to get to this agency because I knew it was a better, better stepping stone for me. Uh, and then from there, I started kind of working with the digital uh, designers there that were there at the time and worked with them on a lot of projects. So kind of been like pretty much their sidekick. And then eventually, over the years, I've kind of like built my knowledge up from there, especially my UI skills. And eventually, lead digital guy there left. And I, I had to kind of like fill his shoes almost. So I was the only one there, which was at much interest in digital. I think the other designers could have definitely done it, but they didn't have much much interest in it. I was very comfortable with print and that's what they liked and enjoyed as well. So that's where I kind of like fell into the UI role. And over the years from there, it's kind of led to more UX as UX has become more of a topic in a digital design. And from there, yeah, I've always had a thirst for knowing the latest technology and knowing the latest software and tools and being able to offer them. And that's kind of a key thing with my offering as well. That I can offer an all-round fit. Nice. So as you say, there's a lot of time that, that, that went between that and um, specialising. Yeah. And now you're, you're freelancing. So you've been, you were in the agency world for the best part of seven, eight years. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think I started when I was about eighteen, and now I'm twenty-seven. So yeah, it's quite quite a while. And and how come you went freelance? What made you decide to uh, take that leap? I've always wanted to have my own brand, and I, I suppose it was kind of forced upon me as well because the agency I was at at the time, just before going freelance, wasn't really like working for me. 
wasn't creative enough. It was very uh, kind of like psychology, kind of scientific, which is is great. But I also enjoy the creativity side of things, and uh, the the big the big idea and the big concepts, and especially bringing the brands into it as well. And uh, this isn't something they they offered at at all. So I know it wasn't really right fit for me. So I wanted to do my own thing, but I I, I kind of knew that I wanted my own brand, and it's it's just a leap of faith really. It was no one ever because at the time I was uh, living at home still. I didn't really have any dependencies. And I think if, in a time in my life where I could take that leap and take that risk and it not be detrimental, it was now, now or never. So I kind of just took that leap there and then. Nice. And, and how have you found it? A massive learning curve. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I love working for myself and building that brand from the ground up as well, especially it's literally gone from nothing to uh, definitely something. And knowing that it's all on you and all, all because of you and the people you surround yourself with as, as well, of course, and all the people that support you. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. I love it. I mean, definitely, obviously, it has its challenges, but it's definitely something I want to continue and something I, I, I'm actually loving at the moment. Are there any um, are there any challenges you face that you can sh- share with us or, or, or to help anyone thinking about maybe going freelance, something they might not have anticipated? Did anything take you by surprise? Yeah, I mean, the number of challenges. For example, like when I was a designer at an agency, all you do is design. You get your brief and you design. But when you're have when you're a freelance, obviously you work for yourself. You're not just a designer, but you're the finance manager. You're the new business executive. You're the PR and social media executive as well, as well as the lead designer. So the biggest challenge and the biggest learning curve is you've gone from just being a designer to being every single person that you know of in the agency to make that tick over. So it's, it's you have to learn a lot of like finance and kind of project management as well um, yourself and to make all the projects run smoothly. But at the same time, I think if long as you're just down to earth and you're a people person, then I think you'll be okay. Yeah, no, it's one of those things that people don't necessarily think about. I mean, it's much like starting an agency. You, you end up wearing so many hats sometimes you you miss the day uh, that you could wear your designer hat or creative hat whatever it was prior uh, all day long but um as you say you learn you learn from it yeah you definitely got to, you got to kind of position yourself like a swiss army knife you've got to be able to drop into any agency in the no matter where you are even if it's remote and fall into that agency perfectly not just that but produce great work without too much hand holding so you're expected to drop into any agency, produce the work to, to, to the brief on time without any kind of too much direction because that's what they're paying you for. Right? They're paying you to be that extra design resource. So you kind of need to fit in as a designer within their team. And and how do you find working remotely? I personally enjoy it. Obviously, it has its kind of challenges. So like finding a quiet room in the house is always difficult, um, especially when you've got a little dog. It's quite quite a challenge. But I, I like it because I always found myself more productive at home anyway, because when I was working at an agency, I'd always go home and kind of like tinker away at home with my own like projects and kind of design. I design in my spare time. It's, it's quite sad, really. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy design. So when I'm at home, I'll be designing anyway. So it's kind of like I'm getting paid to do what I'd be doing if I wasn't being paid for it. At home is where I feel most comfortable as well. It's nice to have kind of that studio vibe when you go into a studio and you've got all the guys around you and, um, you know, you're all kind of chatting and inspiring each other. But with Slack and obviously 
whoever you surround yourself with, especially myself, a lot, or a lot of my friends are naturally designers because of the connections you've built up over the years. It's not hard just to ping someone a message or have like an open chat on tandem and have that studio vibe, but at home, it's um, it's good. Yeah. So do you do you do you find yourself leaning on those design communities then to get just that? Yeah, I I lean on them just to stay in a loop. So I know there's a chat called uh, channel Slack channel called Design Birmingham where you can there's just open chats where like have you seen this latest uh, piece of software? Have you seen the latest Figma update? Have you seen the latest schedule date, etc. But you can keep in the loop there as well. But also you've got your personal friends. So a lot of my friends, like I said, my friends are designers. So I can ping them a message and say, guys, what do you think of this? Kind of send them a link to a prototype and they'll just literally just give feedback just because that's the way we help each other out, really. But when you're a freelancer, you have a network of other freelancers, um, which you naturally kind of either recommend when you can't do jobs or you can just like pick their brains. It's not, it's not a competitive market where you can't talk to each other or you wouldn't recommend another freelancer because they might take your work kind of thing. It works both ways. You re- you recommend them and they recommend you as well. So it's it's nice it's a nice friendly place. Yeah, and I think it's important as a as a freelancer to not kind of feel stuck on your own. I remember talking to Dave Harland, who we obviously both know, about his his setup as a freelancer and where he works. He's actually surrounded by other types of creatives, and I think that um, I recall he said that was. That was a vital part of um, the environment for him. Yeah, it's it's nice to have that support network because obviously you're all in the same position and you all face the same challenges as well. And when you can learn about the same thing with a person, you naturally become friends. <laughs> so when you all face the kind of same difficulties and you know, you know it's not just you in that, you know, everyone's in the same kind of boat. And at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to make a living. So I don't think anyone's going to try to stop you doing that. I think there's a lot of work out there for freelancers it's not like if another freelancer joins the club tomorrow that we've all suddenly got no work uh there's not there's enough out there for everyone and i think um, if everyone works together it can be a nice place surprisingly the creative industry it can be it just needs it just needs everyone to be nice to each other yeah let's um let's let's touch on another specific challenge that you probably couldn't have anticipated but it's a challenge that we've you know i've been through numerous times since starting gasp um, and that's the pleasure of of getting <laughs> of getting sued. Oh yeah. So um, or at least <laughs> threatened legally. So you um, you've recently rebranded. Has, has anything changed going from Scamp to Mason? No, to be honest, to be fair, I um I remember putting a, a LinkedIn post out, and I was kind of like wondering, do I do I do this, or do I just change and not not tell anyone, and just kind of have done with it. But um, it he actually done me a favour because it, it it boosted my social profile quite a bit because. It, it was classed as a rebrand, I suppose, and people like jumped on the back of it saying, this is, this is great, I love the new branding, which actually won me some new work, interestingly enough. And uh, it's, a, oh, okay. it's a very good conversation start as well when people are like, oh, I saw you, uh, someone tried suing you. And I was like, yeah, so you want me to do your brand? <laughs> <laughs> and, <it> was, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I promise you won't get sued. So, yeah, it's kind of, um, it's, it's quite it's done quite well because it's, throw me back into the spotlight for a momentarily and uh want some work off the back of it and if anyone has any problems with that name they can uh yeah, i didn't choose it i didn't choose my surname did i so they can go and have a no they need to see, see your exactly, mum and dad yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> just throw it back on there he's disowned you anyway so <laughs> fuck it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's not my problem though no no okay nice well i, I like mason i mean mason's a strong name anyway my funny enough my um 
my ve- one of my very first uh, studio directors was a chap called Phil Mason, and he was always a brilliant bloke, a pr- really brilliant, talented chap. And um, yeah, so there's, there's meaning in it for me. But you know, crucially, there's heritage, isn't there? It's Tommy Mason. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, onwards and upwards. I want to talk about accessibility in design. So accessibility, for various reasons, is something that seems to be um, maybe treated with a bit more, or certainly thought about more in design and and in production. So uh, whether you're looking at developing websites, any type of media, it seems to increasingly being uh, much more accessible than, than perhaps it used to be. I'm not sure if that's true. What inspired you to focus on accessibility? Because I know that's something that's important for you. Yeah, I've definitely um, always been an advocate. Well, since moving to into design, been an advocate for it. And to be fair, what inspired it probably is that I also suffer from disabilities, both uh, mental and motor as well. So I've got epilepsy and uh, cerebral palsy. Uh, I was born with them, so you know, twenty-seven years I've been with them now. So. And they don't go away, even though they're pretty much invisible. So if, if you met me, you wouldn't probably know that I have this. But when I first got into into design and started creating you know, interfaces and kind of those kind of things, my little brother also suffers from dyslexia. And one of the first things I created when I could do these things was um, a new interface where he, he had an Android at a time. And he struggled like, texting my parents. But at school, he was fine because he had this kind of like blue filter. Uh, which he used to put over his books and his, his writing books as well. So he had that kind of support as a piece of card uh, at school. But when he was trying to text even myself and my brother or my parents, he, he really struggled. So I designed him a new interface, which looking back in, in today's world is probably horrifically bad. But he kind of helped him out in a, in a time that he needed it and uh, offered him a solution, basically. So I've always been keen to offer solutions to to people and obviously when it comes to accessibility we've got this amazing kind of resource which is the world wide web and it's important that every person has the right to access that and the same resources online it's like you wouldn't build a hotel without any elevators or lifts you, you build it for everyone no matter what their needs are or kind of what their restrictions are as such and i think winning people is a lot more rewarding than winning awards i think as designers we get too caught up about seeing our names on awards or awards uh, websites and the drum and MoMA awards and all this, all this jazz and it looks great on your LinkedIn but I'd rather win people and kind of offer them solutions that made their life easier than another glass award on, on a trophy cabinet <laughs> as such. Yeah, I mean that's what um, design really is. I mean it's it's a, it's a, it's a method of communicating isn't it and, and as you uh, I, I'm pleased to say chose function over form in the quick fire form follows function so ultimately if you want to make something functional for anyone regardless of any accessibility needs it's it's, it's the right route surely because otherwise you're not communicating you're making it ambiguous and, and um, ineffective yeah exactly design a lot of people say like design is how it works and 100 percent it is how it works and don't get me wrong ui is also important obviously because people say design is how it works but let's not forget that how it looks indicates how it works so ui also is very important when it comes to accessibility as well but yeah both both need to work in kind of cross-pollinating each other and am i right are you are you finding in in your work and and with your added kind of awareness of 
websites, for example, being accessible? Are you finding that more things are being developed with accessibility in mind? Yeah, it's almost one of the first things that kind of, uh, is currently coming up to me and saying, like, I think that, I don't know if they, they find me because I talk about accessibility a lot or just because they're being made more aware of it in their day to day, that a lot of people's uh, kind of OKRs, uh, objective key results for this quarter is almost, uh, we need to be more accessible and people are identifying it. And it's definitely something they they kind of want to push and move on because if they're not being accessible, then it's not going to be a great user experience, but also Google won't rank it as, as well in the Lighthouse score as well. So it's definitely something people are being more aware of. How do people ensure that their work results in a more accessible experience? Are there any tips or anything that you can recommend people look into? Yeah, there's a criteria called WCAG. Uh, which is a criteria that uh, can ensure you're being more inclusive in your design. So it's like a checklist criteria. It's almost like an artwork checklist. Before you send something to print, you check that, you know, the the you know, overprint is off, you text is outline, for example, whatever you want to do in print. Uh, but this is like a checklist which makes sure that your kind of design is accessible. There's also a lot of tools out there which kind of like plugins for Sketch and uh, Figma, for example, which allow you to check check color uh, color contrasting so there is one called color contrast i know there's many out there i've actually got a link uh, on my site which uh points you to all these different kind of tools as well so you can download them as plugins and this wcag for example uh, will push things such as like alt text on images color contrast supporting keyboard navigation uh, which is actually the law if you're not doing that on your website you're actually breaking the law and i know target big chain in america uh, recently got sued uh, millions of pounds for not doing that because their website was inaccessible uh, so it's definitely something people should be considering yeah for sure okay great well if you share those links we'll add them to this episode listing so people can yeah. um, can check those out yeah sure perfect perfect um i've got a couple of listener questions for you tommy cool so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but we've got two for you starting with Laura so we may have kind of skirted around this to start with but she asks what's your advice for, for those starting out in the creative industry e.g university versus apprenticeships my advice for starting out in the industry probably don't really care what people think because a lot of people have opinions but they don't mean they're valid opinions as such there's a lot of people in our industry which are completely winging it and anyone who says they're not is a total lie because we don't know what the future holds. If if you asked a designer, uh, you know, twenty years ago, have you designed any apps? He would probably tell you he has. But in a lot of people just say yes to doing a design job when they don't really know how they're going to do it. And you shouldn't know how you're going to do something. You shouldn't know an answer to a brief five minutes after reading the brief. You need to experiment and create concepts uh, and talk to people. Don't feel like you need to come out of a solution purely by yourself because it's not going to happen you need people to bounce off and don't be afraid to take risks because if you take the risk the payoff of that risk will be greater than if you played it safe um, you'd rather kind of ask for forgiveness than ask for permission so definitely definitely take risks nice yeah you're speaking my language there t- totally i also i also like your point about it's it being okay not to know the answer within five minutes of a brief and i think that's true in so many areas of our industry and I don't just mean design I mean you know marketing if you're looking at brand and strategy work and one of my favorite learnings from uh, Mark Ritson has always been the line 
I don't know, but I'm going to find out is basically the answer to most questions we get asked in our industry. And I think it takes, sadly, takes some time for people to really get the confidence to actually say that in a client briefing session. You you kind of maybe go into, or certainly more likely in the younger uh, phase of your life to feel like you need to have the answer. Yeah. I think that's a change we face in the design world as well when people say, how long is it going to take to, to create this, this thing that I don't know what it is yet? And it's like, it's hard to say, oh, I'm going to take two weeks because what you're doing there, you're 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 basically putting a bet on. You're put you're putting a bet on you being able to think of a concept which you, they're going to like within a certain amount of time, which is is pretty much mind reading and is near on impossible. So it's kind it's, it is it's interesting. So that's a, definitely a difficult rephrase. But also, I hate it in like kind of design meetings with clients and stuff where you'd be in a meeting and a designer would su- suggest a answer. Uh, within that within the, the briefing meeting because from the off you've kind of you've put all your eggs in one basket now and now you're going to start creating a concept that you've just agreed on in the actual pitch so it's definitely something you need to kind of explore and uh, research as well research is definitely important and uh, knowing your market as well yeah you're right i mean measuring creativity in units of time is hugely flawed yeah no one says let's that song's 20 seconds longer so it must be better yeah it's, it's the same <laughs> with timesheets isn't it i remember working in agencies, filling in timesheets. Oh, I've not, I haven't filled in a timesheet for nearly two years now, and it's, it's so much easier. <laughs> and I do get asked to put in timesheets. I, I never know what to say. Like, how can you explain creative research in, in, in a timesheet? Because like, it's all in your head. It's, um, it's a strange world. I don't, I don't think we've actually cracked the way of design processes work yet. I think a lot of people do it very differently. Um, and obviously, being a freelancer, you see these different ways agencies work, and I don't think no one has cracked it. Yeah, I think so much uh, is down to the context, what what the work is, and we've 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 sadly found ourselves in a world where you need to fit everything into a spreadsheet, and spreadsheets don't allow room for creativity. Sadly, yeah, exactly. Uh, question two is from Ben. Ben asks, were you ever tempted to tackle the London scene, or have you always been an advocate for the non-London scene? I wouldn't say I'm an advocate for the non-London scene. It never really took my fancy. The only time I've been to London is is to design awards, and even then, everyone's fucking on Jamal now. Like, they just need to calm down a little bit. Like, if you come to Brum, honestly, I, I don't know what we're smoking down here, but it's a lot more chill than you guys. Uh, <laughs> but uh, London never really took my fancy, guys. I'm, I'm from a very small town, uh, and if I walked out, um, I'd probably see like Doris, who's known my mum for 50 years, and she saw me. She probably like raised me, like I went around the house or something like when I was six. It's a very, very different world uh, living in a small town compared to London. Probably something I will experience, but um, I would only do a small stint there, like maybe a six month stint or something like that. Definitely not. So I'd rather do like Sweden or uh, you know, yeah, kind of like Stockholm uh, rather than London. Nothing against London, but it's um, just not for me. I mean, I've, I've obviously freelance for agencies that are in London, but I'll do it in Birmingham. Fair enough. Yeah, I think um, it's one of those things, isn't it? Again, uh, we, I mean, we've certainly lost talented grads to London agencies because there's that kind of shiny perception that, that London agencies have. And, you know, that's fair enough. That's just yeah, I think just part of the mix, really. I think Brum's really underrated as well. But, but being so underrated, it's very easy to impress because people don't expect anything but it's it's the kind of people who you expect nothing from that produce the unexpected which is quite nice um i think we've definitely uh, birmingham like is a definitely a big creative kind of city 
so I think we've got a lot to offer. There's a lot, there's a lot of cool creatives in, in Brum as well. It's, I, I read um, the other day as well in, in researching for our pod, is, is it's the youngest city in England as well. The average age is, is, is younger than any other city. Took me by surprise that day. Probably because we're having kids at 16. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. You need to control yourselves up there. Right, so the, the final part of the interview, Tommy, is our four pertinent poses. Starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Yeah, probably what I kind of touched upon earlier, kind of like, don't be afraid if you don't know something. Uh, it's, it's it's fine to admit that you don't know something because you're not meant to know it. You're not meant to know it all yet. You're still young. And um, listen to listen to everyone and treat everyone as you kind of want to be treated. Don't just treat the boss like nice just because he's the boss. Treat, you know, treat the cleaner the same way you would the boss kind of thing. Um which is always something I'll kind of live by. And just, just be yourself. I, I see these articles about how to do kind of self-branding and self-identity and all this. It's just complete bollocks. Just be yourself. That is your brand. Like, you don't need to pretend to be another brand if that's not you. Like, self-branding is the easiest thing to do because all you've got to do is just be who you are, which, which we don't need a blog on that. Nice. We don't need a blog on that. That's my favourite snippet so far. Love it. Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why, Tommy? Uh, co- coffee shop designers. You know, do you know what I mean? Like those those fuckers who walk around in skinny black jeans with a black t-shirt with black square rim glasses and holding a Starbucks. Oh man, it's just complete <laughs> bollocks. No one lives like that. Like honestly, like the perception some designers give of their life is complete and utter bollocks. It's just like you don't walk around with your Kodak camera around your neck, with your square frame glasses. Nobody, nobody actually lives like that. Everyone, everyone's house is got like clothes on the bed waiting to be hanged up. Nobody's life is perfect. <laughs> like, just remember that Instagram is like the best bits. It's not, it's not real. It's not real. I think a lot of time we live in an Instagram kind of world where everything's in place and everything's perfect, and you see these studios where everything's white and clean and. Uh, drinking coffee which is out of a perfect mug and it's just complete bollocks everybody knows that as soon as that camera's gone that studio is absolute chaos because they're trying to get a pitch out the door for five o'clock which they've been told about this morning <laughs> it's, just, it's just complete bollocks and like LinkedIn is just as bad because you, you see these kind of like these these CEOs of businesses saying that like they're doing amazing but everybody's in the same boat everybody's you know, faces their challenges. Every everybody has a moment where they struggle. Just be honest, and just I think be honest with your kind of your audience. They'll appreciate it a lot more than just pretending that you're doing absolutely fantastic all of the time, because that's not the that's not the world we live in. Yeah, you made a good point about Instagram there that I'm a fan of. That I mean, Instagram is curated. It's not it's not a it's not holding up a mirror to someone's life. It's the it's the edited. Yeah, exactly. Version. I think a lot of people would take it for like. You know, this is actually their diary, their daily diary, and causes a lot of mental health issues because people try and live up to what they see on Instagram. And everybody has arguments. Everybody has a bad day at work. It's just not. It's just not real, is it? No, no, you're you're bang on there. Uh, number three, Tommy. Any books that you would recommend to our listeners? I don't really read, to be honest. Not not books anyway. I I, I got read websites and blogs. So Interface Lovers is a is one I I, I love going to. A lot of interviews from like designers and product designers, which is which is great. 
yeah, I don't really don't really read many books. I'm more kind of watch like Netflix documentaries, sort of abstract and stuff like that, as opposed to read books. And when I read books, I just I just look at the words. I don't really take them in. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of like gaze off into my own imagination. Oh, well, give, give us a, give us a Netflix recommendation. So we've got Interface Lovers for a website. Give us give us another recommendation of any any type or flavor. Abstract on Netflix is a great little um, series of documentaries again with different designers. Uh, there's a They've recently done another season uh, where they interview the designer from uh, Instagram, a product designer, which is great as well. So um, great, great little watches. Nice. That sounds really good. Sounds really good. Um, and number four, then, uh, we always dedicate every episode to someone, Tommy, and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode to somebody? You know what? I'm going to go really soppy. I'm going to dedicate it to uh, Amy, my uh, girlfriend, because a lot of the time I... I'll sit there and try and think of a concept, and a lot of time it's her, it's her who comes up with the concept. So, uh, and I'll just claim claim the invoice. So, even my even my studio names in the past have come from her as well. So, um, yeah, I'll de- dedicate it to her. Amazing, cool. Okay, well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Amy. Then, <laughs> as a as a final call to action, everyone listening can head over to uh, the the episode listing for links to everything we've discuss so that includes abstracts interface lovers we'll stick studio mason links up there um how can our listeners get more tommy mason if they really want more tommy mason they can uh, visit me on instagram they can visit my site and drop me a message or just catch me around walking around birmingham i'm the ginger one so i'm quite easy oh. <laughs> amazing i'm the ginger one wicked Oh, that's brilliant. Nice one. Well, uh, Tommy, thank you so much for joining us, mate. It's been um, it's been really fun and I've really enjoyed yeah, it. Thanks for having me, mate. Really enjoyed it. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. We value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.